When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 130, and we're recording on Thursday, October 29th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We're both a little draggy today, and I, I don't know why. Even the news is a little draggy. Yeah, today. it's a little it's slow. It's a slow, quiet morning. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot it, going on. but It feels like maybe kind of summer again in Richmond. I'm oh. cranky. Like, I'm glad we don't have any big, big cranky news because mm. I'm so cranky pants today. I would just be angry. The, the crank club would be the first one out of the bag today is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that's been interesting, and you know, we, we watch new social platforms and uh, apps come out all the time, and it, it's always hard to tell what's going to take off and what's not going to. In fact, by hard to tell, I mean virtually impossible to tell. Um, but one came out this week or last week that we've been playing around with, well, you've been playing around with. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's just called the List app, I guess. Uh, it is. And it's... I'm not really sure how this works exactly, but either B.J. Novak was the founder or the idea. Or I don't. He's I would, one of the co-creators of it. I'm, I'm not yeah. guessing he did a lot of coding, but uh, it's <laughs> it's something he's behind. He's creating a lot of lists on it, and he's following a lot of people. He's following Book Riot. I'm pretty pleased about that, even though it's kind of like I think that getting followed by B.J. Novak on the list app is probably the equivalent of getting followed by Tay Diggs on Twitter. <laughs> like if you're there long enough, it's going to happen yeah, right. for some weird reason. So, so tell me what it is. What is the list? So app? it's really simple. Uh, and one of our contributors, Claire, brought it to our attention because she knew that we love apps that do one thing really well. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that both of us you know, have a hunkering, a hunkering, hankering. It's I, a hunger there and a hankering. Be, yeah. A hunk is a totally different story. Uh, it's a, this really elegant app where you create lists of things. You can create a bullet pointed list or a numbered list and people are doing really fun, interesting things with it. So uh, Book Riot has done a list of like things that you think about when you're reorganizing your bookshelves. Uh, I put the best new books from the All the Books podcast on there this mm -hmm. week. We might do today when we're recording is National Cat Day. And so we might do like literary cat names um, and sort of similar to the way that Twitter and Tumblr function. You can like or comment or relist someone's list. Um, and there's a way to make your list collaborative. So um, I have a personal account there too. And I just published a list this morning of movie quotes that are frequently used in my personal lexicon. Um, but you can set it so that other people can add their quotes to your list also. So the community kind of grows and people are doing straightforward things. There are news organizations posting like, here are the five stories of the day. Vox is doing, you know, sort of mini explainers, but here are the five things you need to know about whether bacon gives you cancer or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but people are doing like, you know, the uh, someone, my hero, did Leslie Nope describing Ann Perkins ranked. 
And it was all of those great phrases like, oh, and you beautiful land mermaid, Mm -hmm. Uh, but in order. So there's just tons of interesting, cool things you can do with it. We're going to be playing with it. It's only on iOS right now. So if you have an iPhone and you want to make some lists or follow some lists, I've been really impressed with the creativity and the fun uh, of the content that's been coming out there. So you can find Book Riot on there. You can find me as Rebecca Shinsky, um, and we will talk about books and other listy things. I think it's pretty cool. It's really boiling down one of the, the central tenets of the internet as we know it, the, the list, the yeah. uh, to, you know, it's it's essential and, component, which is just sort of bullet points and not and much else there. It's interesting for how stripped back it is, for how, you know, sort of simple and elegant the process is of using the app. Um, the content to me feels better. Like, uh, it's not you know, just like 25 pictures of cats doing things. People Mm -hmm. seem so far, at least in its early days, being like relatively thoughtful about how they're going about using it. Early Uh, adopters are always like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, And and this is the first time that we've been like really early on a thing since uh, Twitter predated the existence Mm -hmm. of Book Riot. So I like it. Who knows if it'll hang around for the long haul, but we're there for now and you can hang out with us over there. Uh, Other, I guess that's interesting news. On to good news this week. Uh, First book, uh, which is a nonprofit that you know basically its 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 idea is to get um, books into educators' hands so that they can serve children in need, um, serving millions of of kids a year. They won the Library of Congress uh, David M. Rubenstein Literacy Award, which is a big deal. It's a it's a it's acknowledgement that we've partnered with them before. Um, it's They're our partner this year. This year, I'm sorry. Yes, this year, I've I've gotten confused. They're our partner this year, um, and they've they've distributed more than 135 million books and educational resources to programs of schools serving children from low income families throughout the United States and Canada by making new high quality books and educational resources available on an ongoing basis. First book is transforming the lives of children in need and elevating the quality of education. Uh, so we're proud of them. We're proud to be partnering with them. Congratulations to them. Also one place, again, I, th- I think as I said last week, we, we like to do at the end of the year, um, and people start thinking about their charitable giving for the year, um, both because it's the holidays and also because you can see <laughs> your taxes, you know, you can if you have uh, a little something to give, and you're thinking about that way, First Book is our partner. Um, 2% of all the revenue from our company, and I don't know if it's something that people know, um, go to our charitable, charitable partner for the year. So um, in sometime in the beginning of 2016, we'll write them a big check. Uh, and we're proud of that. And yeah, we, we hope if you have um, some thinking to do that you consider first book among your charitable donations. Um, they, they, they're a great enterprise and, you know, clearly something that's close to the core of what we care care about here. Um, so congratulations to them. Yeah, awesome group. They've been, they started also an, or not an organization. I really don't have words today. They started <laughs> a campaign and a new program to produce um, diverse children's books that feature. Right. Um, that are that feature characters of color that are written by people of color. They served as the catalyst for the first bilingual editions of Goodnight Moon and The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And they, you know, work on all kinds of literacy efforts. It's just such a great organization. We, as you said, we're really happy to be working with them this year. And if you're listening to the show, you're indirectly contributing to That's Book That's true. Riot That's because, right. Uh, you know, every two percent of two cents of every dollar that we make from advertising, from podcast sponsors, from anything you buy from the Book Riot store, from the oh. quarterly box 
boxes, all that stuff um, goes to our charitable partner for the year. And so, so yeah, we've done 130 episodes. So 2.6 of our episodes have been donated to charity over the time. That's the way one weird <laughs> way, way, to weird way to think about doing that. Um, congratulations to them. Speaking, about- speaking of sponsors, speaking of what? we got 2% oh, of this you. will go right to uh, first book right here. Yeah, this week's show is sponsored by On the Origin of Superheroes. It's by Chris Gavilar. Um, This is something that you're going to know more about than I am, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, most readers think that superheroes began with Superman's appearance in Action Comics number one, uh, which is a thing that I learned about last year when we launched panels and I started learning about comics. But really, by the time Superman's creators were born, the superheroes' most defining elements, the stuff like secret identity, having an alias, wearing disguises, having a signature symbol and a traumatic origin story and extraordinary powers and being a self-sacrificing, altruistic person, were already really well-rehearsed standards. Hmm. Um, So On the Origin of Superheroes is a quirky personal tour of the mythology, the literature, the philosophy, and the history of ideas that have like swirled together and permeated Western culture in the centuries that led up to the first appearance of the superheroes that we know today. Um, The author, Chris Gavler, takes readers through the creation of the universe to mythological heroes and gods, to folklore, ancient philosophy, revolutionary manifestos, discarded scientific theories, and even gothic monsters. Hmm. Uh, So you get to meet mad scientists, Napoleonic dictators, murderers, diabolical madmen, Wild West outlaws, you name it. Uh, Everybody is in this book. And On the Origin of Superheroes takes a fascinating and often really funny look um, at the surprising prehistory of the most popular figure in pop culture today. So that's On the Origin of Superheroes. It's by Chris Gavler. Um, I've been thinking about superheroes this week because of the launch of Supergirl on TV mm-hmm. and talking about what a sort of revolutionary step that is in uh, superhero pop culture. So that seems like this is actually maybe right up my alley too. Um, on the Origin of Superheroes is out now. You can buy it wherever books are sold and we'll have a link in the show notes to it as well. So thanks to them for sponsoring. We were in Target the other day because, you know, you go to Target basically every other day. That's how mm-hmm. it goes. Uh, and we were perusing the costume section. It did strike me. It, I don't, is this the, the apogee of superhero awareness? I, I It's hard to remember a time when, I guess maybe when Superman was new or Batman was new, but like so many of the costumes are superheroes, Avengers and Iron Man and X-Men and Spider-Man. It's like so, so many of the costumes mm-hmm. are superheroes, the Guardians of the Galaxy, kind of the whole thing. And we're, we're at the apex of Marvel's really cinematic dominance. It's hard to imagine they can go on like this for much longer, but I, I, I could yeah, be wrong about that. But an interesting time for that book to come out. It's like here yeah, at the Zenith, it, go back it, and look at the, the beginning of things. Yeah, I feel like this is the apogee so far, but that we're still on the uprise. Yeah, I, get, I, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I guess it could go on for a while. I tend to think of it as maybe being like Westerns where they – you know, have a couple decades and they continue mm-hmm. to be a, a genre, but not not like this where like, you know, four of the top six grossing movies in a given year right. are going to be superhero movies. Uh, interesting to think about. Uh, interesting really book. interesting. Uh, so we've got continuing news from the yeah, wheelhouse. Yeah, on the, I haven't read this. Sec- this is the second uh, installment <laughs> of Obama's. No, I haven't. I've been waiting for this weekend. Um, second installment of Obama, President Obama and Marilyn Robinson's conversation because I guess saying Obama interviewing Marilyn Robinson is disrespectful because it really feels like more like an interview where, um, I mean, if you look, if you just do a, a count of who's asking questions, 
right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Obama asks, asks a lot more questions. So I'm looking for, is it, is it good? Is it just it's as good so as the first? Good. Yeah, okay. I think that actually this one is better. Amanda told us after the show that she thought it was funny listening to our voices get higher and yeah. higher as we were talking about the first one. I felt that internally when I was reading this one. This second piece really focuses on books. Uh, pres- the president and Marilyn Robinson talk about mm. um, whether she's worried about people not reading novels anymore. He talks about um, how reading novels is what helps him develop empathy and he gives reading novels credit for his learning, you know, what it really means to be a citizen. Mm. Uh, they talk about uh, the what an achievement democracy is and how fiction can remind us of that. Uh, he talks about, President Obama talks about Hamilton and about pop culture and new ways mm. of teaching history and writing about history. But there's so much good stuff about books and reading and what, you know, what books and the reading life mean to us, not just in a like warm, fuzzy, feel good sense, but really the role that books and reading have played and can play in uh, in the development of, you know, the American identity. It's it is great. I continue to want the Barack Obama literary podcast. Well, uh, I have nothing else to say about this except I'm looking forward to it. But maybe he will curate something at the New American Writers Museum in uh, his hometown of Chicago. That was beautifully done. I was working all week on that. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've heard about this before. This story that there might be an American Writers Museum coming somewhere, um, and they found a home in Chicago. It's set to open in early 2017. Um, the founder is Malcolm O'Hagan. Um, that he announced that the museum's no home will be an 11,000 square foot space at 180 North Michigan Street uh, near Millennium Park in the Chicago Art Institute, so right downtown in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know downtown Chicago a little bit. You know it much better than I. Um, he's a retired engineer who emigrated fr- to the U.S. from Ireland. He's on my list for Reading Lives, by the way. i got to get this ah. guy. Um, he founded the, the American Writers Museum Foundation in 2010 and selected Chicago as the site in 2011, and he's raising money. 22-member board, which includes Roberta Rubin and National, uh, Washington Post Book World Editor-in-Chief Mari Arana. I think Pre- uh, Obama Emeritus, President mm-hmm. Emeritus Obama, would be a coup of all coups uh, here. They've also raised about $3.3 million so far, and they're trying to get up to 10 for the museum's startup costs. Um, interesting. I I definitely think there's there's an interesting institution here. 11,000 square feet uh, is not huge by yeah, any stretch of the big. imagination for, for a writer's museum. The thing about a writer's museum that I, I'm, I'm – curious about is like what is it like what do you put there too and it says one of the museum's galleries is dedicated to chicago writers and literature so like i guess since president carl sandberg and right uh, or like since obama is a chicago writer austin you know from there maybe like here's an early draft with his notes on it Mm -hmm. that you can look at through glass i'm really interested in what that will be because so much of written content is stuff you have to hold in your hands, you know, at least if they're going to display it. Yeah. The, the, the closest analog I could think of is the Morgan library and museum here in New York, which has an unbelievable collection of manuscripts and documents and first editions and signed. And, uh, and they have, you know, they, they have some key pe- I mean, they have four Gutenberg Bibles and like three Shakespeare Whoa. first. I mean, it's an insane collection. Um, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's a you know what they have on display is relatively small, but the thing about those documents is they are unfathomably expensive to acquire. 
like $10 million maybe gets you in the door on, you know, a, a writer's back. I mean, Marquez, mm-hmm. I think we read his back catalog went for $4 million. Like, yeah. that's what we're, t- so I don't, I don't know, maybe through some multimedia and you can have some other kinds of exhibits, but it doesn't sound to me like this is going to be sort of an archival where you can go see, I mean, for example, they have, uh, they include in their literature uh, display at the JP Morgan Museum, like the the handwritten notes of the lyrics to like a Rolling Stone mm. and like Walt Whitman's handwritten drafts of like the crazy sort of like, you should wrap this stuff in shrouds and pray to it sort of stuff. Um, so it'd be curious to see how they're going to go about doing this. I think there is some version of this. This is interesting. I think the the initial foray is going to be hard to to, mm-hmm. to imagine for me at least. Yeah, it'll. I, it would be an interesting field trip, and I love Chicago and hope I'll be able to go and check it out. I wonder if it'll be like interactive timeline kinds of things, you know, like an interactive history of Chicago in literature or like presentations of the Chicago fire in different pieces of literature. Like there, there are so many things they could do, but I wonder if you are, if you go to the museum, what do you as a museum goer actually do? do. Yeah. Projected to draw 120,000 visitors annually and will net somewhere in $1.75 million in revenue by 2021. Okay. Yeah. I think, in a way, it also makes more sense to focus on temporary exhibits that are mm-hmm. focused and topical, yeah. where you don't have to necessarily own the stuff that you're on display, but you borrow mm-hmm. it from other museums. Stuff like, this is the 200th anniversary of this thing being published, or this right. thing happening, and yeah, here we're yeah. celebrating. It says they're also going to partner with local independent bookstores to do readings and author events, um, and they'll have a multi-purpose space called Reader's Hall. So that yeah. could be a good source of revenue, too. Like, maybe they're going to do it, and maybe they'll have a podcast live from the American Writers That's, Museum. I mean, th- I, that cool. would be amazing. Uh, Chicago's a great literary city. Um I'm sure that they could they could get interest going, and in I'm trying to think what would be the next uh, what would be the next big sort of milestone. So we're in 2015. Let's see, Gatsby. Let's see, Gat the the 100 year anniversary of Gatsby is within striking distance for them. That might be something they gear up for. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what else is coming up. 1915, like Sinclair Lewis. Yeah. Uh, I think he won the. Nobel Prize in the early 20s, maybe, if my memory serves. A Midwestern writer, you could really do something and around yeah, that. Yeah, the expose of, it was Sinclair no, Lewis. No, no, you're thinking one. of Empton Sinclair. Um, I confuse I them mean, all. That, you're I, thinking I, of the I, jungle. I, Sinclair wrote. Tom Wolf and Tom Robinson. I can't keep my Sinclair straight. <laughs> Sinclair Lewis wrote Main Street and Babbitt. Uh, so anyway, um, but yeah, I think that's going to be really, really interesting to follow um, because you don't. I don't. I've been to the Smithsonian, but I haven't been there in a while. I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff about writers there. The Morgan is the the one, and then the British, the British Museum and Library in London has a bunch of literary artifacts. But in terms of like museums that feature literary texts, you know, that really focus on the written word, especially those are the two that I've been to before. So um, interesting choice of location. I don't. I don't know that you pick one place over another for a, a writers museum. I mean, probably New York, to be honest, mm. but that you know whatever doesn't it's nice matter. and centrally located for the yeah country. i guess that's true yeah and it has a good literary tradition and it's um you know right in the middle so uh mm-hmm. congratulations to them um i'm really yeah. pulling for this and looking for this to i'm be gonna good. look forward to learning more about that too yeah um it's gonna have a multi-purpose space called reader's hall 
Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. I'll good, go. Good. I will yeah, check we'll go. it out. It's too next... bad that they're not launching in time I was for the 2016 of... Book Expo. BEA in is in Chicago next summer. Um, maybe we can get a tour of the space or something like that that's being be... worked on, like a little. Uh... We've got to cook up some sort of Chicago literary something. While yeah, yeah. City to is too great there. not to do something. Um, um, okay. What, do you want to take the... a? Should we take uh, a quick break? Or what are we doing? What are we going to take now? a cruise to Book Banning Boulevard? Uh, well, well, let's go through these stories. But I also want to, anyway. We'll talk about the the. I want I want to actually want to hear from readers. Like, do they want to hear these stories? Like, what good is? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm of two minds about this. But let's let's go through. We have them on here. A couple of interesting ones. You take first. I'll take second. You take third. Sure. Okay. So uh, my first one, the first thing we've heard this week uh, is that parents at a Michigan elementary school moved to get the school to ban the latest Captain Underpants novel from its school book fair because one of the main characters of the book is gay. Uh, This is Arborwood Elementary School in Monroe, Michigan, and they won't be stocking Captain Underpants and the sensational saga of Sir Stinks-a-Lot at the book fair um, because uh, according to School Library Journal, the decision to ban the book, which uh, is marketed towards children in grades two through four, was made by the school's PTO, which I guess the PTO runs the book fair, mm-hmm. um, on the grounds that most of the kids come in and they and they buy books at the book fair and their parents aren't part of the selection. And like, I remember that my parents giving me, you know, like a $5 bill and trying to decide which books to buy at the book fair, which pencils to get or whatever. Um, the book... Uh, ends with a scene where one of the characters who is male has a male life partner. And some of the parents didn't like this. And so they have decided that they will not stock this book at their school book fair. Uh, hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as these things go, of school book fair, I, I, I'm not that worked up about a book fair, to be honest. Like, it's one, for some reason, I don't, does that make sense? Like, I don't it know. Does. Like, it's one it, thing if you yank it out of kids' hands that a teacher chose. Yeah. It's like, it's low on the list of things that I'm worried about for schools and book banning. Um, th- there's some interesting angles to this. Like, it's interesting that it's the parent teacher organization making the final decision um, about what gets included at the book fair, I guess, because the PTO runs the book fair and it's not actually run by the school. I don't have kids and I would have no desire to be on a PTO. So I don't know the politics of that. But one of the parents uh, is quoted in this LA Times piece as saying, I think at this kind of age, a parent should be involved with them because they're so young that maybe this is something that needs to be explained to kids, this Mm -hmm. content about a male character having a male life partner, which like if you're a parent who wants to supervise your kids at the book fair, presumably you can do that. Uh, Also, the school's motto, according to its website, is preparing students for a changing world. Uh, So I think that's kind of a delicious piece of irony. Uh, Let us prepare our students for a changing world by not stocking a book about a progressive that the book's not even about the progressive issue. It just happens to have a character who's gay. Um, but I'm having a hard time being worked up about it as well. Yeah. Um, let's move on up the totem pole of, of being mad about stuff. Uh, this one is extremely loud and incredibly close by Jonathan Safran. Four was pulled from an English class. So mm-hmm. this is not a, a suggested summer reading list situation. It's not a library. This is something that was assigned. Um, because there are several passages that were extre- that detailed extremely vulgar, extremely vulgar, comma detailing sexual acts. Boy, they're really going out of their way to yeah. to not say whatever. Um, she, she said parents brought up the concerns. 
as to the content of the book. Um, the problem was we we wasn't necessarily the book or the material Sinclair said. The problem was that we did not provide parents with an opportunity to opt out. Sinclair said school officials should have given the parents the ability to say they were not comfortable with their child reading that material, as is done when R-rated movies are shown in the classroom. Uh, Sinclair said that school leaders are addressing the process, working with the English department on creating a doc, document with a summary, connection to the curriculum, and notes about the text of the books. We want full disclosure to parents about what the students are reading. I don't know. Is this one of those you should have, instead of asking for forgiveness, you need to ask for permission situations rather than the vice versa? I, I don't know. High school English class? Like, I read this book, and I don't know. I, I don't remember necessarily yeah. anything out of the ordinary of, you know, what people do to and with each other. Um, boy, I don't know. I, I don't remember any of the specifics either um, of, of this book. I don't remember being shocked by any of it, and that's just you know, my personal level of unshockableness with fiction. Um, but there's a response here from a, a free speech group called Kids Right to Read, which is a part of the National Coalition Against Censorship that has fought this decision and argued that um, removing the book is problematic because the book has recognized literary and pe pedagogical merit. It's been taught at the school for years, um, which that's interesting that this book has been taught at this school for years and now it's only a problem because people have just noticed or they're just now objecting to some of the content. Um, I just really fall on the side of like, if you are concerned about what your kids might be reading in school, then it's your job to Google those books and read descriptions and reviews and read the books. Mm -hmm. um, that providing the reading list ahead of time or even when your school kid comes home from school. Like, I mean, ask your child, what are you reading in English this week? And if you have any concerns about it, pick it up and read it and make that call. I don't love that they also thought that the only solution then was to pull the book from the schools, from, from the class because odd. some parents yeah. objected. Like you can, op you can offer the opt out now, like tell the person who objects to this content that your kid doesn't have to read any further or won't have to take the test on this book and can read something alternative. But in the, the Sinclair said it's tough. And, and I totally agree with this. You want to give students something appropriate to their age and reading level. Uh, and to do so, it's sort of hard to, to find in a book that doesn't deal with like, what book are you going to pick? That doesn't have, you know, some sort of violence or some sort of drug abuse or, you know, normal, healthy, sexual uh, relationships and activity. Like, what can you read that everyone beforehand would agree is okay without having read it? Even if, you know, like, right. I, what are you going to pick? Like, Great Gatsby? I mean, spoiler I alert, it ends in a double murder. Well, and there's a big party where they all get wasted they get and people wasted. have sex. Like, I it's, mean, I, I'm not sure what to tell you here. The classics are full of sex and infidelity and... The Scarlet Letter is about <laughs> adultery. A, right. Uh, and This and, is a cornerstone of human life and experience. And your spoiler alert, your teenagers know about sex. Well, I'm, and even, they have, yeah, I'm even taking that off the board. Internet anyway, people. <laughs> Just like, what could you give a high school student that is interesting to them, that raises issues, that gives them the opportunity to think and feel and experience what a book can do? Without being so defanged that it's, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know what you could. I don't have a good answer for you. 
uh, are you more comfortable with racism and uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? Because that is super interesting, if that's true to me. Um, do you need to be comfortable with it? Is being the parent being comfortable, quote-unquote, comfortable uh, with it a valuable vector of, by which to evaluate a book selection? I'm just not sure here where you go if you are because then what is the opt out book right and if it if there's an opt out book is more amenable, why not pick that book and then do you need an opt out book for your opt like how far the re- it's turtles all the way down here, man, until you get to well, you can't even pick Captain Underpants because someone's right. ba- taking it up <laughs> so uh, that's so hard to 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 understand for me is you know maybe maybe what you should maybe what we have to do is here parents here's the list of the books. Um, if you don't trust us, which is implicitly what a parent is saying here mm-hmm. by by objecting to this, um, read the books, and you know maybe we can come up with an alternate for some of them. I I don't want to make it easy for parents who are so scared of the world that they're going to pull their kids out because someone's describing you know oral sex or something. Like I don't remember what it is. I, maybe it's something different than that. I don't know, but I'm just using well, that as an example. Yeah, like everybody's personal definition of what extremely vulgar is yeah. is different. Uh, I'm, I'm 100% with you there. I think there has to be a way to acknowledge parents' concerns about content and parents' rights to determine um, what their kids read and what their kids have access to without allowing one person or a couple people's discomfort to dictate policy and curriculum decisions for the whole school or for a whole class or a group of students. Um, if I'm a parent in that situation and find out that you know, someone else's discomfort with an issue means that my kid isn't reading. Oh, I'm through the roof. I'm on fire. Or even as a student in that situation, I've told the story before about what happened with one of our um, great English teachers in my high school when Romeo and Juliet was challenged by a parent who it turned out had not actually read Romeo and Juliet. And as a student, you know, I wanted the, like, Romeo and Juliet, you've heard of this. This is a big, you know, important work of literature. I wanted the opportunity to read it and to learn about it in a classroom and extremely loud and incredibly close is one of the big books of the last like 10 years. And, uh, is important culturally for a variety of reasons. And if you're a student uh, who, you know, wants to learn about that in a classroom, you're probably upset also that like two people's parents uh, got to make your, uh, got to define your education for you. And I think that's extremely uncool. Yeah, on a pragmatic level, like I, I totally sympathize as well with the, the the school board here and the educators and, you know, because this book was approved, it's been read for a while it probably didn't even occur to them that they needed, you know, that we've been doing this for a while, that someone now is going to come this late in the game and register some sort of complaint. And we have no pressure release. We have no, we have no, we either have to stand and fight, which is also very difficult for them to do, um, or pull the the plug on it. So, but I, I don't know where the line is for a, an English teacher to determine what's appropriate and what isn't for right. all of the students and balancing being challenging and thoughtful and relevant and meaningful with being palatable. Uh, most of the most fascinating and meaningful reading experience of my own life would not fall under the category of palatable. Same. Um, I don't know that's what we should be thinking about what literature should be. That are, uh, As a 16-year-old book nerd, Reading what my parents approved of was, in fact, the last thing in the world mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be a concern or something that teachers don't think about. 
but maybe some sort of some sort of ethical or moral position that we can defend that at the first sign of trouble, we don't throw the books out the window. That's the thing that really strikes me here is like, it says parents were like, was it one parent, two parents? Like, was there, or was this a sort of an uprising? This is, or is this the scene in Field of Dreams where uh, Amy (laughs) Maddox, they're at this huge, they're at this huge, you know, panel forum, which that's one thing. If If the community is up in arms, like that's one thing. And I'm still not sure I'm okay with that, but it's a different situation. But it's one thing if someone wrote a letter you know, and said, you know, you, I can't believe you're, you're fouling little Jimmy's mind, which newsflash. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know what we're talking about here, but they, they immediately have to uh, jettison the work. Because, you know, people get up in arms about trigger warnings because they don't understand what they are. To right. me, this is much worse than that. You know, I, even, yeah, even, even, the, even the most ham-fisted understanding of what a trigger warning is. It, this is worse than that because at least that's the individual student deciding. You know, you, even even if you you believe sort of the worst Atlantic think pieces about how trigger warnings makes us uh, people, in which you need to go read about traumatic stress disorder and triggers. But at least that's the student acting on their own behalf. I think if you're 16 or older, it, if you could drop out of school, you can decide rather than your parents what you should be reading, right? Because you don't have to be in high school. You can drop out right. of high school after right. 16. That's one. Because I do understand that position of like, if I'm federally required to send my kid to school, then that's something else. But at some point, you, you I think it's 16, right? Where you can drop out mm-hmm. and the truant officer isn't going to get you. If you're there, you're, you're there and you're making a choice. Um, and that kid should have the right rather than the parent to, to, to shoot a flare. Yeah, I just really, I really have a problem with a, with this from a variety of perspectives, Mm -hmm. but that it's a few people uh, upset about what, like, I I would like to know at least what these passages are that they think are extremely vulgar. So interesting that it's it's Um, struck from the record here. Yeah, I'm thinking about also um, one of our contributors, Josh Corman, who was a high school English teacher for several years, wrote a piece for us a year or two ago about what happened when um, parents at his school challenged his teaching uh, of The Handmaid's Tale. Wonderful piece. And, uh, and that's a perfect example. That's a book about what happens when a theocracy takes over uh, the country, when women are subjected to you know violent and objectifying treatment. Um, there are some disturbing sex scenes in the book that are intended to be disturbing because they make a point that Atwood is very specifically trying to make about um, what the risk are um, of allowing you know certain groups and certain kinds of thoughts to to dominate and what happens when you take away women's control over their own bodies I can't imagine uh, a, that there is a book that you could explore those ideas about social control and personal freedom and autonomy um, how do you explore those kinds of ideas from a book that is palatable I yeah. don't know that there's an alternative um, Margaret Atwood certainly you know doesn't own the corner of the market for exploring those ideas. But every other book that I would think of uh, that you could offer up to explore the same notions and to ask the same important questions is equally disturbing. <laughs> and that those some books are disturbing on purpose for a reason. And you can't get it. Like, is, is there a palatable way to talk about the risks of uh, religion controlling Democracy? Is there yeah. a palatable way to talk about the risks of, uh, you know, white male leaders determining what women are allowed to do with their bodies? I don't think there is. Those are not palatable notions. They shouldn't be. I um, mean, maybe the opt out 
maybe you just think of the opt-out as a pragmatic solution because at least then if you have an opt-out and it's old yell i mean i don't even know like <laughs> old yeller for everything. connecticut yankee and king arthur's court like i'm trying to think of something that i, I don't remember you know, anything anyone could really object to but you know there's probably something maybe at least then the parent is just declawing their own kid's education i mean maybe mm-hmm. you know if they're gonna throw a fit um and get in front of the bus uh, of modernity here then you can at least keep the other ones from having to be subject to one small group of parents' moral sensibilities. Uh, and, and and maybe that's fair. I mean, maybe that's how it should be. Is like the parents are free to screw up their kids in their own particular way. Uh, in this particular case, um, I wish it. I wish. I wish the parents' own moral sensibility wasn't going to come into play. But maybe in the name of protecting most, you have to give. You have to have an outlet so that mm-hmm. the, the few that are really going to cause big structural problems can be mollified. I I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're not going to get rid of the knuckleheads, right? That's the right, great right. West yeah, thing. I you're never going to get rid of all the knuckleheads. So what do you do so that most of the good-intentioned, open, interested students and parents cannot have their freaking book thrown out after while they're in the middle of reading it? Like, it drives me insane. Right. And I don't want school districts to have to to waste time and money and valuable resources fighting this no, kind of crap. No, it's, no. This is not where taxpayer dollars should go. It's not where limited time and energy that teachers and administrators have should have to go. It's hard um, enough to teach a room point, for a 17-year-old like, than not have their parents coming after like, you. The buck has to stop with someone and whoever yeah. that person is in the school or the school district. Though I think it, it also falls on those people to stand up and draw a line about where parents' concerns are allowed to go and where they aren't allowed to go in making curriculum decisions. You know, I've had uh, relatives and friends who have worked in private schools, and that's a different bag. You know, if you're paying your own money to send your kid to private school and something comes up on the curriculum that you don't like, that feels like a real threat to those teachers and administrators because what happens if everybody gets mad and everybody leaves and then we don't make money in our private school anymore? Public schools are a different situation and ultimately somebody high up has to give those teachers and and administrators the power to say, this is our curriculum. We have good pedagogical reasons for selecting these books. Here's the purpose that it serves. Here's the one like pressure release valve outlet point um, that if you don't like this book, we will assign something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, we're not going to allow a small group of parents to make decisions that affect everyone else's children's education. Um, that It has to come from higher up, right? Like that ha- This has to be a structural thing that happens. Yeah. And that's what's so baffling to me about how this these stories continue to come up for us about public school classrooms and public school libraries is we're so afraid of a few parents like uh, that we give those few parents all the power to make these decisions or we are schools are then catering reading lists to the few parents that they're afraid of but really what's going to happen like what's the end goal like i feel like this is maybe a so what situation yeah You worry that people will be mad at you, but if you can test that assumption and say like, okay, so uh, like you and I disagree about things all the time. And if I get in my head about like, well, what if Jeff gets mad at me? I have Mm -hmm. to have that conversation with myself of like, okay, so Jeff gets 
mad at me. So what? Like, is this a Jeff's going to fire me situation? Probably not. Like, are we going to be weird with each other for a couple of days if we have a fight? Maybe. Is it ultimately in the best interest of the thing that we're doing together to have the fight? Probably. Um, what's going to happen to these schools if they just let these parents get mad? Like someone needs to look at some of these parents and say, okay, you're mad. So what? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's, I mean, this is what happens with us online is we write something that a bunch of people get mad about. It's the energy and attention and, you know, psychic wherewithal to withstand it. Mm-hmm. It has a cost. I mean, you can say, well, we'll just deal with the blowback, but then that has costs. And that's the part I'm sympathetic to. It's like, I don't think it's the English teacher's job to fight a public battle about vulgarity. Like, I just don't think that's fair and appropriate. And it's the, it puts too, we already put too much mm-hmm. burden on librarians and teachers and nurses and, you know, you know, like the front lines of the intersection of public and private life in America. Like, that's one. I think this is a failure of the superintendent. I think it's a failure of the school board to have any sort of measure in place. And if they don't have some sort of measure in the place in the future where a single parent or a group of parents can be mollified by, um, you know, uh, uh, a milk toast replacement book, then then that's what they should do. Because I think they put the students and, and other parents in an untenable position, unfair to the teacher here. Speaking of untenable and unfair positions. Oh, um, Florida, a, a county in Florida, this is the last of our trifecta, and I think maybe the most disturbing to me personally, uh, these these censorship and control stories, Collier County, Florida Public Schools came to a decision to let parents see what their children are checking out from the, public, the school library. Um, the district opened its doors in August, allowing moms and dads to review what the nearly 45,000 K-12 through students and its 50 schools are checking out the library media center. This move comes after a series of book challenges the district faced in June 2015 when a parents group called Parents Rock Rights of Choice for Kids, boy, oh boy, Mm. um, raised concerns about four titles, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, Beloved, Christina Garcia's Dreaming in Cuban, which is a great book if you haven't read that, and Lewis Duncan's Killing Mr. Griffin. They wanted the district to restrict availability of these titles to what they called age-appropriate children with a parent's um, typo permission. Um. And so this, the district's response was uh, to open the doors rather than take the books out, which mm-hmm. I guess, whatever, um, was to basically do a full, full, the full Big Brother. And, and, and uh, there is no more kimono here. Uh, you can see if you're a kid, if you're a 15-year-old, whatever you're checking out, your parents can see. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. Really? This is like something out of a Margaret Atwood book to me. Ah, you go I the really, other way? I do go the other way. Um, I don't, well, dog doesn't like it either. Um, I don't love this, but I also kind of think it might be the best solution. Like the thing that I, that I have argued and that I, I think we've both argued um, is that it's parents, if you, if you want to be upset about what your kids are reading, it's your job to be monitoring that. Um so I, I hope, I guess I have two feelings about it. I hope that no one will actually use this tool. I hope that parents see the value in letting kids choose their reading material in understanding how powerful books can be and that, um, you know, children, while they don't have a legal right to privacy when they're under the age of 18 uh, in your house as your children, uh, 
there's real value in giving your kids that freedom, you know, and I know I benefited from my parents not monitoring my reading, that they just trusted me and knew that if I read anything that went over my head, hopefully I would ask questions or I would figure it out. I know I looked up some weird things in the dictionary. Um, All of those were formative experiences. And so I hope that no one will do this. But I also hope that this might ease some of the tension there, that if parents who are concerned about what their kids might be reading can look at those books and you know, remove the book from their own kid's hand, maybe this will decrease the challenging of the presence of those books in general. Like, if you're a parent who's worried about this stuff, and you can stop it at my kid checked out this book that I think is inappropriate, and so I'm removing it from their room and returning it to the school library, maybe that means you feel enough sense of control that you don't then feel the need to challenge the book's presence in the library, period, and remove it from everyone's access. Um, Because I do think that it's, you know, when kids are under 18, it's parents have the right to determine the content that their kids interact with. I I think parents have the right to put internet, you know, controls on to use whatever the parental controls are in TVs. And so I have a hard time separating books from that. If you're, if you want to control your kids access to certain types of content, that's your little red wagon to pull. And this is a way to allow parents to do that with reading material. Um, but I don't love the reality that parents will use it. Here's the thing for me is the very books that the parents are worried about that some kid is checking out is probably the book the kid needs the most. Um, I agree with that. that I, it will only serve to chill what kids check out, to put a, a chilling effect on those few students that are reading something surreptitiously because they know their parents wouldn't approve. It's something they don't want people knowing they're reading about, that they have no, I mean, they don't have their own financial resources most of the time to go buy a book somewhere else. So this is a space where they can explore. Um, this is a space that's un, unmediated by what their teacher assigns or what their parents give them. Um, what even, you know, what they pick out at the public library that they were driven to by their parents or a family member, like, as it, when it comes to what a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old has in terms of freedom of information, the public library, especially the school library, is the place. And I know that when I was 17, um, there were books I was interested in that I, didn't, I wouldn't want my parents knowing I was interested in. Uh, and it's only the most vulnerable kids um, that are going to have the, the – because you know – no parent cares about the choose-your-own-adventure book. Um, but it might be something else. It might be something else um, that is important about drug use or about sexuality or about a, your parents abusing you or about mental health or alcoholism or drug, you know, any number of things. The very things being policed the most are the things that the kid really would need. I mean, I don't know. Like, this is all canard to me that this is all about something else. This is all about um, people who aren't comfortable with the way the world is trying to keep uh control of it because that that's the they don't care they don't care about they don't care about beloved they really don't they what they don't want is for their kids to see things that they don't approve of that's what they don't want and if they're gonna have the fight this seems to me like such a i don't know such a weak-willed maneuver of the on the library's point of view just to let it happen you know if you have a problem with if you care what your kid is reading check their freaking backpack look what they're reading like 
I don't know. It, this, it, it, this really bothers me in that regard because then the whole the whole library becomes Panopticon, where everything you're doing uh, is visible. And if there are books that kid, parents don't want their kids reading in the library, well, then talk to them about it or what, look at their backpack. But you know, having the the ambient surveillance available at all times. Because it's one thing, if you know you have the kind of parent that checks your backpack, well, then you can go move around that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you could check something out, and then the next day your parents get pissed off because you checked out the bell jar. Uh, that, that's ter- that seems terrifying to me, just a horrible way to raise people who care about books. Yeah, it's, I see that side, too. Um, and I do hope people won't use it. Uh, our contributors It's almost worse if they don't like, use it. It's, it's worse if they don't use it, because then why does it ex- – then it's just sort of like – it's like those those mirrors they put in banks. There's no camera behind it, but you're just supposed to think there's... Well, so, and I, I mean, it, goes, it does give the library a chance to say, like, if someone gets mad down the road, it gives the library a chance to say, like, well, we, have, we made this tool where you could have checked. You know, you could have checked. We are not hiding. Like, we as the school library are not hiding anything. You could have checked. It's not our bad that your kid read that book. You know, it does put more of the onus onto the parent. It puts um, more of the onus onto the kid. Is what it does. That's no, what I it can, does. That's what I, can it, I mean. That's the, what it does to that. It, it it exonerates the library of any sort of having to make any sort of claim about a book. And it's this is it'll be this post hoc intervention on the part of a parent's like, oh my god, they read uh, the Handmaid's Tale or they read Flowers in the Attic, uh, and then they they come down on the kid with no one there to back them up at all. I do agree that the kids that will be the most harmed by it are the kids who are already the most at risk. I think that there is a flip possibility as well, though, that a kid would check out a book about an issue that they're wondering about and trying to figure out, and that some people, some parents are good parents who could use that information to say, my kid is checking out this book about a thing maybe I should ask them some questions. Um, Are there conversations I should be having with my child that I'm not having that I don't know I need to be having, but that this book might point me in that direction? Um, But our contributors had a really interesting conversation about it on the Slack channel that they all share. And someone did say, you know, I can imagine that, like, I might check if I were a teenager and I had a weird experience with a person or I wasn't sure if it was assault or if I was raped, I might use books to try to figure that out first. Um, I might also be really glad if my parents brought it up because then I wouldn't, as a kid, have to figure out how to have that conversation with my parents who are good parents that I feel comfortable with. Um, it's, I, I, it's not, I don't think it's an awesome solution. I, I don't think I'm not as, I'm not as upset about it. As you are, I'm really interested in what um, what our listeners think about it. I think there are lots of risks here. Um, I can understand some of the potential benefits. Um, so let us know. Send us an email at podcast at bookriot.com or tell us on Twitter. Where do you guys fall on this? Maybe I'm wrong. I could totally be wrong. I mean, the other thing that will happen too is that kids who are looking for information that they don't want their parents to know about will know what to do. They just don't check the book out. They pull sure, it off the could, shelf and you or, read it right there. Right, or maybe you, you get a friend to check it out. Like, yeah, or you're something else. I mean, I think kids who it's you know kids who want to see a thing or read a thing or learn a thing or get access to a certain piece of information or get access to drugs or whatever. Like kids find ways to get access to the things that they want access to, and um, so I don't think that this is a like this is not a shot 
that kills a child's access to a book. It makes it more difficult um, for for perhaps the kids who most need that information, but it doesn't make it inaccessible. I mean, the only the only I, I think I think it's a fantasy that some kid will check out a book about child abuse and the parents will look and there's a you know a, a running towards each other in a field of poppies to talk about it moment. I, I don't maybe that's possible, but that's not what this is designed to do. I think I think if the libraries are cagey, what they could do is then stock more mm-hmm. more interesting books because now they have cover. I mean, rather than yeah. rather than just fight about, you know, beloved and like, well, okay, if 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 we now have carte blanche to stock because now it really is on the parents, um, then let's 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 do this thing. Yeah. You know, let's and let's have it all on here. You know, um, like if you're if you're a parent and you're paying attention and you're 10 or 11 year old girl is checking out, uh, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, you know, once a month, then maybe your kid is curious about puberty and has some questions about things that are happening to her body. And that's an opening to have that conversation. Like, I I do do really think there are parents out there that are attuned and are sensitive to that sort of situation that aren't doing things or like suddenly now they're going to be like, Oh, maybe I should pay attention to what my kids are feeling and thinking. I I mean, I I I think what your kids choose to pick up, and read on their own can could be an interesting signal. Not not that it's going to start parents down a road that those parents aren't already going down, but in the the flip side of this harming the kids who are most at risk is that it could be really helpful um, for the kids whose parents are paying attention. Yeah, yeah maybe there are good kids ask at risk kids that are reading stuff that are that are flags that will help people. But as a book as a as a kid who books mattered to a lot, books were my private life. Um, when I was 14, 15, 16. And to, to, to make that sort of public, uh, to make that uh, discoverable, just feels like a real violation to me of how I understand what my own personal reading choices are about. Now, again, we get into this fuzzy line of like, at what age you know, because I, 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 I would agree that at seven, maybe you shouldn't be checking out Naked Lunch. Like maybe that's something that we should we should watch for. Um, not because it's going to hurt you, just because you don't know what you're doing. It's just very confusing. Um, but uh, you know, I, maybe I maybe the sixteen is a good line. Like when you're sixteen and you're there, sort of by someone's volition. You know, it feels like that's a time where suddenly you don't need to be you've earned or you don't even earn rights 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 are what you have like you have a right to check out uh beloved without you know it being an open book to to, to your parents i mean that I don't, maybe that's where it might come down i mean maybe that's just a statement of belief like yeah, if you want to check out beloved from the library when you're 16 i don't think that's subject to your parents approval i really i, I really don't i think the ethics of it are different from the legality of it. Like, oh, of course it's legal. I mean, if it was illegal, know. they wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> right. But like when you're under 18, your parents get to make the decisions. Well, um, no, they don't. I mean, not in all situations. I mean, you can have an abortion. You can get married in certain states. You I mean, you can smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things. This is just one that we've decided is okay for their parents to have an inter- intervention in, which is weird, right? That you can smoke yeah, a cigarette, and but mm-hmm. you can't check out Beloved without your parents knowing. I mean, that's, well, that's weird. I mean, when you're 18, like you can't buy cigarettes. No, but you can smoke them legally. It's it's a weird loophole in the law because tobacco lobbies are powerful. Like if you find right. cigarettes on the street, you can smoke them. You can't buy them or you can't be given right, them. Right, but right. if you they somehow <laughs> magically appear in your hand in most states, you're legal it's legal for you to smoke them. 
uh, you know, you can drive a car at 16 without an adult, but you can't read Beloved. Like, that's so weird. I mean, it's such a that is weird. weird. It's so weird. It and, does speak to how much power we know books have. Well, uh. yeah, I get, I mean, yes, the power, but also like, the, I, the, I mean, I ask this on Reading Live sometimes, you know, when people, I ask a question like, have you ever read something that you felt like was over your head? And usually it's like, well, yeah, but either I didn't understand it or I looked it up. I was like, you know, no, no one's ever been ruined by reading uh uh, to to catch her in the rye, like I mean, I, I guess that's where I wanted to come back when we were at the top of this. Where we were talking about these book bannings, like I still don't sort of get like what are people so af- are they gonna are they afraid that they're gonna you know these in these conservative places because frankly let's not mince words these are conservative parents and conservative groups worried about quote unquote morality which is basically being gay and having sex before marriage and whatever like do they really think that reading uh I, I, you know, reading some book that was in the public library led them to live in the village and wear tank tops. Like, I don't get it. Yeah, they really do. They really believe that. And it's just so freaking dumb that I can't, I can't get my head. I mean, I guess that's what it ultimately comes down to is like the fundamental premise that's, that's used on the part of the people that are banned, you know, that want to get this stuff out of their hands is so cockeyed and dumb that I can't deal with any of the following, you know, li- logic of it. It's just so uh, it's, ridiculous. It's the same parents that, despite all the data showing that sex education doesn't make kids more likely to have sex, it just means that they're more likely to have safe sex. Like, despite all of the mountains of data that we have that show that that is real, um, they're the, the, you know, the parents don't want sex education in schools because they feel, it's feelings. So this is not rationality, this is feelings. Um, that you know, well, if we have sex education, if we talk about birth control, then kids will kids will not just be more likely to be to use birth control; they'll be more likely to have sex. That's not real. That's not what happens. Um, but that's their feeling. They're scared of it, um, and they're looking for ways to apply control um, to this thing that they're afraid of. Which I don't really care about your feelings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's what it is too. Like we talk about the bannings. I try to think about like what solution could we make people happy. And like part of me is just like. I just don't care. Like, I just don't care. And it's, that's easy for me to say because I'm not there the ones with parents knocking on my door and with picket signs or whatever, whatever kinds of soft power and maybe hard power too, frankly, of people's jobs and things of that nature are, are being applied. But like, I, I guess are other, do other people, are other people sympathetic? Like, do neutral parties, they're sort of like, if you're a parent who, you know, uh, saw that, you know, maybe you knew the passage that they're talking about was being read, but you're like, well, it's a book and my kid, does, is anyone besides the people protesting sympathetic to their point of view? Does that make sense? That question? Like, yeah, are I there a bunch just... of people out there that like, if you really said, well, what do you guys want to do? Like if we took a vote of the 34 parents, right? You know, what, what we're, what we're going to, we're not going to do an opt out, but we're going to do a straight up or down vote is, should we be, should this book be on our curriculum or shouldn't it? Would they win? Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, I don't think they would. Um, I don't think they would win either. I, I don't think even think it would be close. We have this really horrible set of precedents now that a few parents who are scared of reality and who don't want those, you know, who don't want sexuality and 
well, it's almost always sexuality, um, but who don't want those things discussed in front of their students, in front of their kids, because they're afraid that their kid, that knowing this thing or having access to this idea will change and ruin their kid and affect their morality in ways that they perceive to be wrong and negative. That we've given those people the power. The public schools have given those people the power. We have this set of precedents now that parents get mad about a thing and administrators are expected to kowtow to those few parents because they're scared of something. Yeah. Um, and we don't have is, parents, or at least we don't hear about the, the Amy Madigan characters in Field of Dreams that stand up and throw a fit, right? That really, you know, that 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 defend at the top of their lungs the right for the book to exist in the world and in the library and in the curriculum. Like, we don't hear those stories. So it's really a question of asymmetric, asymmetric caring, where the people who want it out are louder and they mm-hmm. seem to care more for whatever reason about a specific book. Maybe it's the other parents are like, well, my kid will read some other book and it doesn't really matter to me because, okay, it's just one book that's getting excised and there's well, and a million other alternatives or something. That, like. Those confrontations are really uncomfortable. Like I think it's also possible that you just want that parent to shut up at the school board yeah, meeting right. and yeah. that they're doing whatever they have to do to make the problem go away and to get the parent to shut up so that they can not waste any further time and effort and money yeah. on it. Because I think the thing they're afraid of is if we keep this book on the list, this parent's going to sue, and then we're going to have to spend money right. yep. fighting this lawsuit, yep. um, which is a real fear. And it's a ridiculous, it's ridiculous that schools have to be so afraid of this today. Um, I don't know what the solution is, but I think there has to be some solution that comes from higher up in school districts that stands behind teachers and stands behind the experts choosing curriculum. Um and choosing books that students read. And then, as we were saying earlier, gives a gives a release valve option to that vocal minority who are going to be angry about the thing. Um, but then what do you do? Do you just maybe, maybe you just create an alternative curriculum that those kids can go on for their whole four years of high school? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, where does it about, stop? Like, like, you're going to be mad about Catcher in the Rye that. in ninth grade. Well, and then, then you got to do creationism and sex ed and the, uh, U.S. politics. Well, I don't want my kid. Know- that slavery is very uncomfortable. And um, couldn't we get an alternate history that doesn't really focus? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a huge. It's a hor- I mean, because the pressure release valve is only a pressure release valve if it's just a valve. If you drop the bottom out of the plane, then everything falls out. You know, I mean, it- yeah. So there is a slippery slope element to it, and I don't know if it's give them an inch and they take a mile, or you mollify. Because um, it feels to me like. Getting taking this book off the class is the inch that leads to now parents can search for all the books that kids read in the library. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, it's almost worse. I mean, if I had to pick between a book getting removed from a curriculum from a reading list and making all the books in the library the the, the books that kids check out from the library discoverable by the parents, I choose the one book getting kicked out every time. Because the other thing I hear from people all the time is every now and again will be a book that you read for class that is the one that did something for you. But 95% of the time, it's the books you found on your own. True. That's Some of true. it just could be volume that you just read mm-hmm. so much more, especially book nerd kids, that you read on your own, that it's just a numbers game. But that numbers game then matters. Because, like, I don't know. Maybe there are other, maybe most kids weren't like me that I was reading, you know, stuff that I wasn't sure my parents would be cool with. Well, I mean, I also had my parents, they took CDs out of my room that they didn't think were appropriate. So I knew they were, there were things that they cared about um, that I didn't agree with. And, you know, going to the library and actually having my own money from mowing lawn so I could buy my own books and put them where they didn't know or 
they didn't know enough about, you know, modern literature to even know that that book spine that was sticking out in my collection of 400 books was something that to even worry about. So it was sort of like hiding, you know, hiding a, 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 a needle in a stack of needles. Um, so m- maybe I'm overly sensitive to it, but it definitely mattered in my development as a person that got to me where we are, which I'm, I think I turned out okay on the whole. I don't think I'm a horror story uh, for uh, some PTO member to, to, to point at. Um, was a certain degree of freedom in my own intellectual life when I was a teenager in high school. Um, and that matters. So I, I don't know. I, the pressure release valve versus slippery slope is very hard. I mean, I, I yeah, don't really is. know the answer. I, I think we see both in, in this series of stories we've talked about today. I think we see the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Like, in a way, like, I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a weird game of would you rather, but like, would I rather they just get, take Beloved out and give cover to the rest of the books so that the kids can check things out in private. I mean, I, that feels like a Sophie's and, choice to me, but it's at least something yeah, I'd have to think about. Like, it's the crappiest calculus. To yeah, have it's, to do. It's, it is. It's <laughs> really very bad. Um, boy, we got we've been gone on about, about forever. And some of this is like I don't know how much the the the, the meta question I was going to ask our listeners just to see what they thought is like. I mean, we could we could we could talk about these isolated cases forever, like another book. Uh, another reading list, another teacher, um, another library, uh, another uh, uh, syllabus. And I don't know, I mean, is it worth hearing about these all the time? Is it worth going through these? Like, I do think something we would talk about, the library making the catalog checkouts discoverable to parents. Like, I've never heard of that before. Um, so that's definitely a piece of news. But another uh, incredibly loud getting kicked out or Captain Underpants getting whatever, like that's another, you know, uh, car on the train. I don't know if it's I, – I don't know what I get out of it, frankly, to keep paying attention, I guess, to maintain vigilance. But it does feel like I just – it's exa- I feel like it's exhausting. Like here's another one, here's another one, here's mm. another one, here's another one. I, yeah, I mean I feel like it's exhausting too, but it's an exhausting thing that should be paid attention to. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's where I fall down on it. I'm interested in, and, and I, whatever the listeners think is separate from what I will personally pay attention to. Yeah, right. Um, do you want to hear something good? Should we move on yeah, to something Yeah, let's, do, we gotta, let's do our pair of Book Riot. We are we plugs. So we're going to use our own advertising for ourselves today. Um, so first, this is our last not, our last show before Book Riot Live, which is November 7th and 8th in New York City. Uh, we're recording a live version of this podcast, 10 a.m., November 7th. That'll be the next episode that comes out will be that yep. live recording. Tickets are still available, bookwritelive.com. If you want to come for both days, you can get $20 off your ticket with offer code wheelhouse. If you just want to come to one of the days, there are single day passes are available as well. We're going to have a lots of panels and discussions and games and funds and giveaways and all sorts of signings and all the kinds of stuff you want and vendors and book swag and um, get your Christmas shopping done for yourself and the book nerds in your life. We have a whole bunch of vendors doing all sorts of interesting things there. Um, so so do come. Um, there are also going to be some, some same-day same tickets, so if you're not sure what your schedule is going to be, you can come on down. Uh, the, I think 9 a.m. is when the doors open. Yes, on indeed. On both days. Um, our recording is at 10 a.m. You can see the full lineup at bookriotlive.com and decide what and if you'd like to come. If you listen to this show 
Uh, follow us on Twitter. We sure want to meet you and shake your hand and say thanks for listening. So come up and say hello. We uh, really do. I need to. I want to emphasize that. Yes, again, me too. Yeah, I, sorry. Because we, I've been, I have been creeping the Twitter for people talking about Book Riot Live. Um, so I confess that up front. But one of the things that I keep seeing is people saying like that they're nervous to introduce themselves to the Book Riot people or that they know we're going to be busy and they don't want to be a bother. Look, the whole we're reason we're going to be busy meeting you. That's what we're yeah, going to be busy doing. The whole doing. reason we're doing this thing is that yeah. we wanted to have a book nerd party for a couple of days with the people that read the site, that build this community with us, that listen to the shows, that talk to us on Twitter. Uh, we want to have those face-to-face interactions. And so we exactly what Jeff said. We will be busy meeting you. We will not be too busy to stop and say hi. Like We might be chickens with our heads cut off for a second. We might only say hi for a few minutes, but we right. really want to meet you. We're not scary. Um, I might yell about things a lot on Twitter, but I'm actually a really nice person in person, and I would love to meet you, and Jeff would as well. And you can laugh at how tall he is and how short I am. When we stand next to each other, it's very amusing. And, and <laughs> if you are feeling awkward, realize that we are just as awkward. Oh my God, so awkward. So, uh, it, you know, we can be there and we'll be awkward together for a few minutes, but we, we sure do want to meet you. Um, let's, we'll wrap both these into one. So we got the new books. We're already running long here. Um, we got some new stuff in the Book Riot store. Speaking we of do. things coming up for the holidays and gift giving and things like that, why don't you tell me about that? We quick? have, so we did these read or die t-shirts a couple of months ago that are awesome. They're black. They have a skull on them that's wearing bright orange uh, Wayfarer sunglasses. It's re- great. So we've done a read or die hoodie and a matching tote bag. Both of those are in the store now if you want to go a little hardcore book nerd with your gear. Also, um, out of print clothing, which powers the Book Riot store, has released a bunch of new sweatshirts. Um, so if you want to wear you know, a classic book cover on your clothing through the winter. You can rock like a Madeline sweatshirt uh, or there's a whole bunch of them. They're really cute. Uh, so you can check those out as well. And I am pleased to announce that within the next week or so, those books hats that we made last year for the quarterly box are going to be available. Oh, yay. The- that is the thing that more people have asked me about than any product we've ever done. They're gray hats that say books across the head um, or like across the brim, I guess. Uh, they're beanies in yellow. They're perfect for skiing or a snowy day or uh, for those of us who have less hair, uh, just for keeping your your head warm. Uh, They're really cute. So those are coming soon. You can keep an eye out. So go to store.bookriot.com to see all the hoodies, the tote bags. Watch out for the hats. Uh, As we're rolling into the holiday season, we have a bunch of cute products and a bunch of sales coming up. They're going to be good deals. Uh, So just keep an eye out there. And if you're coming to Book Riot Live, we're going to have all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Tables with our partners about a print and the whole litographs and all kinds of stuff. All, yeah. all the, the, uh, the, uh, the money-burning opportunities alone uh, will be well worth your time you and attention. You can invest in your bookish wardrobe. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. All right, tell me about some new books. New books. Such a good week for new books. Uh, our homegirl, Marilyn Robinson's new essay collection came out on Tuesday. It's called The Givenness of Things. Uh, I swooned over the loveliness of the book and the titles of the essays, I think, last week. It is great. Um, I always forget how intellectually demanding Marilyn Robinson can be because the fiction is just such a joy to read. But she is such a thinker. And the essays broke my brain in the pleasantest of ways. Um, they're 
just really excellent. She's thinking about the humanities, about science and art and how they interact, the tension between them, how one can uh, support or erode the other. She's thinking about questions of morality. She's thinking about gun control. She's thinking about politics. She's just thinking about all these things and her thinking about them is fascinating uh, and wonderful. And these just demand to be read slowly and carefully. And that's such a great experience. Um, she's just, she, I am in awe of Marilyn Robinson, especially the her nonfiction. So the givenness of things is really great. Um, on the more fun nonfiction side, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl is out this week. Mm. It's Carrie Brownstein's memoir. I was bowled over by this. I know next to nothing about the history of punk rock. I've only heard a few Slater Kinney songs. I have seen every episode of Portlandia, but Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl was billed and sort of pitched by the publisher as like a memoir in music. And I worried that perhaps I would not know enough hmm. about it. But that was not the case. Um, this is really a book about, you, you know, growing up in a tough family situation, um, feeling like an outsider socially, and then discovering your people and your community and that creative outlet that helps you figure out who you are. It's really, and, and about finding yourself in the process of making something. And for her, it was the punk rock community and making music. Um, but I've had that experience with books and the reading community. People have that experience with movies. People have it with comics. Like, uh, it's it's really relatable in that way. And also, you know, this is not a memoir that's intended to be like self-helpy or inspirational, but Carrie Brownstein brings loads of wisdom so I found it to be very instructive, nonetheless, about, uh, you know, just life in general, but also um, living a life that is structured in many ways around creative pursuits. It's really, really wonderful and funny and just great. So that's Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. Um, and then out in paperback this week, 2 a.m. at the Cat's Pajamas by Marie Helene Bertino, uh, which is a novel that's all set in the 24 hours of Christmas Eve about a nine-year-old jazz singer whose only wish in life is to get on stage at the local jazz club, the Cat's Pajamas. Um and if you are still looking for something to scratch the where'd you go Bernadette itch, mm. uh, the stories are not similar, but like the delight factor is equal. Um, it's just a real joy to read. So those are the new books this week. That's our show. We That's were our show. We're chatty. I got fired. I got we got fired up. After all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a good way. Cranky yeah. in a good way, I think. Um, as always, you can find us uh, show notes for this at podcast excuse me, bookriot.com slash podcast. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com, bookriotlive.com. To find out about Book Riot Live, if you're still on the fence, get off the fence. Come come play in the grass um, with us here on the other side of the fence, uh, November 7th and 8th. You offer code WHEELHOUSE, gets you $20 off a two-day ticket, but also one-day tickets are available. No discount code for that one, uh, just to be absolutely clear about that. If you're interested in, make sure you want to see this live show, 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, where the first thing's out of the gate. We're gonna we're gonna lead off. We're gonna lead with our chins, as they say, <laughs> um, on so uh, Saturday morning, and uh, that's our show. We'll talk to you guys. Uh, well, you'll hear us live from New York next time. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>